0: Hey everyone, welcome to this week's Power Hour podcast. We've got a great lineup, so let's get started.
1: Good morning, and welcome back to our Chamber Teletown Hall, the Power Hour that we do periodically, and we're so glad to have you tuning back in with us again today. You know, it's uh, hard to believe that November is less than a week away, and we're heading into the holiday season. And we also know that fall is just such a special time of year here in South Carolina. It's a busy time with festivals and culture, arts and cultural events, and it's also a time when the weather is really, really special. Uh, Last weekend, we were fortunate to have wonderful weather and had a very successful historic Bluffton Arts and Seafood Festival. And then we're also looking forward to next week, uh, next weekend, hosting the Hilton Head Island Concours d'Elegance. I'll tell you, if you want to know what's happening and how to plan your weeks ahead, you can do so by signing up for our Low Country Lowdown, and you'll see a link to that in the chat box there. So I'd encourage you to do so, and each week you'll get an email that uh, updates you on the latest happenings and all the things that are are going on in the region. You know, I'm proud to announce that uh, once again, we also have been selected as a neighborhood champion this year, uh, again, in partnership with American Express, and uh, supporting their shop small campaign. And so we'll be, uh, you'll be seeing more information on that. Just as you know, it's it's so important to shop small businesses. Uh, This year is even more important. Seems like we say that every year, but it uh, continues to be very, very important. And just like a lot of businesses out there, even small businesses are facing the uh, supply chain issues. Speaking of supply chain, issues uh, experts are talking about that it may last well into uh, 2022. And we're gonna do a deeper dive on that today. And we're thrilled to have with us uh, really a national expert. John Drake is joining us uh, from Washington, DC. He's the vice president of supply chain policy for the US Chamber of Commerce. And prior to that, John uh, spent some time as a public policy executive for Amazon. And so I think uh, he knows a probably knows a thing or two about uh, our nation's supply chain challenges. John, thank you for being with us and we look forward to uh, uh, having an update from you this morning. Thank you, Bill. Thank you for the opportunity to be here. Talk to us a little bit if you would this morning about uh, what you're seeing from a, really from a national to global perspective uh, with the, we all read about the ships that are sitting out off the different ports, uh, the challenges with uh, getting them unloaded and then the challenges with the trucking and what you're seeing and kind of timelines on what to expect and just an overall take from your perspective.
2: Yeah, you know, this is, um, well, thank you for that. I'll tell you, this is probably one of the top challenges facing the U.S. business community today. Um, it's it's a long time coming. You know, in a lot of ways, this is a, a sort of a hangover from COVID. Um, and you know, you're absolutely right that the challenge we're facing right now is not one that's going to be easily fixed uh, or resolved uh, in the short in the short time. Uh, you know, a lot of the reasons for why we're we're here today uh, really started with. Uh, the, the shutdown orders that took place and how that shifted consumer demand. Uh, for one, you know, a lot, of, a lot of people, a lot of Americans who might have gone on uh, vacations, who might've gone out to eat, who might've gone to concerts, you know, they were stuck at home during COVID.
0: And what many Americans did in response was shift their spending habits
2: to, uh, you know, online commerce, right, to go to Amazon, to going to Target, to going to Walmart. Uh, and during that time, a lot of these, you know, a lot of these Americans, right. A lot of, a lot of the factories that are responsible for producing these goods that Americans were buying were shut down. And so when all these factories came back online, uh, as the COVID restrictions started to ease, uh, we saw a huge influx of goods coming over from China and from Asia, uh, to satisfy, uh, these purchases were being, were being made. In a lot of ways, it's just completely overwhelmed our uh, supply chain network in response. Our ports are overwhelmed. Um, you know, we lost a lot of truckers uh, due to COVID because of uh, layoffs and lack of demand. Uh, and so there's you know there's, there's workforce shortages as well that are that are preventing us from uh, moving these goods to where they ultimately need to go. And you know what I'll tell you from a business standpoint, what this means is we're looking at increased inflation. Uh, it's a lot more expensive to move a container of goods from China uh, here to the US. About a year ago, it cost about $1,500 to move a container uh, here to the US. Today, we're hearing from members that that $1,500 cost is upwards of 25 to $30,000. And I gotta tell you, you know, if you are a small or medium-sized business, you know, in a lot of times, you know, it no longer is viable for you to, do that sort of business if the cost of transportation uh, is more than the the actual cost of the contents that are in the container itself. Um, And it's also leading to huge delays in getting stuff where it needs to go. You know, we're telling a lot of our members that, uh, and we're telling a lot of the members of the public as well that they need to do their Christmas shopping early because the shortages that I think that we're beginning to see now, and I think a lot of Americans are seeing, we expect are only going to increase in the in the weeks ahead, uh, especially as we go into the holiday shopping season. Um, but you know, even once the holiday shopping season is done, uh, that we should not expect to see that the challenges we're facing right now will will decrease in the new year anytime soon.
1: John, thank you for that. And uh, we have a, a question coming to us from Bob this morning, and, and Bob was asking about some of those companies that are buying their own cargo ships or leasing their own cargo ships. What do you see from them and how will that uh, lessen the the length of time for shipments to come in?
2: Yeah. You know, we're hearing that uh, companies that are large enough to be able to do this, like Target, uh, Walmart, you know, they've done this, but this is not an ideal solution. And it's also not a solution that, um, it's not a solution that really works for the majority of U.S. businesses because it's, It still complicates some moves. Um, It's still, you know, you still have to navigate those shipments through the ports. Uh, And there's a lot of bottlenecks at the ports that can be really difficult to navigate no matter who you are. Um, So it's it's certainly a workaround that some companies have explored. I think they're doing it at cost themselves. They're doing it because they really want to serve their customers.
1: John, I know you spent a little time at the uh, American Trucking Association, and from your experience there and that leadership role that you had, uh, talk to us about the, what we're experiencing once the, once the containers are unloaded, then the challenges that we're facing from uh, being able to get them to where they need to go via trucks.
2: Yeah, you know, a real big, um, a real big pain point from COVID is the number of trucking companies that went out of business due to the expected lack of demand in the trucking space uh, in 2020 approximately three times the number of trucking firms went out of business as what happens in any given year uh, and what also happened with that is because of the expected lack of demand uh, we lost approximately a hundred thousand uh, trucking jobs uh, this is you know the trucking industry you know I, I it is difficult to understate how important the trucking industry is to the american economy the trucking industry moves seventy percent of the freight in this country. Uh, they're responsible for the last mile moves, and they're oftentimes responsible for, in addition to the railroads, moving those goods that are coming into the ports uh, off the ports and to the nearby warehouse uh, or to the retail center. And you know, the congestion that we're seeing at the at the ports is having a huge impact on the ability of the trucking industry to serve those ports and the businesses. Um, know i am hearing over and over again from our members that oftentimes they will try to uh, they are getting frustrated moves at the ports or they're trying to bring a container they're trying to pick up a container and oftentimes they're getting turned away uh, because they are simply they simply cannot the port cannot locate that that container that they're looking to move off there are so many containers that are piling up at the ports themselves Uh, you know oftentimes you'll see uh, containers that are stacked six tall um, you know, we're hearing the stories that uh, the warehouses of ports are at 120 percent capacity, uh, which means that there's so much stuff that's sitting there that you can no longer move a truck easily to get a container or a railroad bring a, uh, to get a container off and move it off. So, you know, there's a lot of frustration on the trucking side uh, in getting stuff moving again. And I think until we, you know, I think until some some I think until folks continue to kind of push up and work together uh these challenges are only going to continue
1: melissa is asking how many how many container ships are off the port of los angeles or long beach and and the number of average number of days that they're having to sit there before they're unloaded
2: so um that's a good question. And the reason we kept, keep coming back to LA and Long Beach is because LA and Long Beach is responsible for 40% of all the incoming goods uh, that come into the United States. And, you know, the number of ships that are sitting uh, at port or outside port continues to grow every day. Uh, I think if I remember correctly, uh, there was reported 100 ships that were sitting outside the, the ports of LA and Long Beach. I think a few of those were, were being in the process of, of, of birthing, but uh, Majority of those are, are actually sitting outside the port waiting to come in. Uh, and I think the uh, the dwell time for those ships is averaging, once they're in the ports, it's averaging approximately 10 days or so. Um, but the, those numbers are a few days old, so they, they may be improving quite a bit. But I, I will tell you from a, stand, from a point of comparison, uh, that 10 day number uh, is in comparison to the approximately two to three days you might see in any given, "Quote unquote normal year."
1: We've heard about the conditions on those waiting ships. Uh, what can you tell us about those? As the the ships sit out waiting to be unloaded, and and the crews that are on those.
2: You know, it's it's really tough for those crews because you know, look these these folks uh, who are manning these ships, or or, um, or staffing these ships. Yeah, you know, in a lot of cases, they've been they've been at sea for you know days or weeks uh, prior to coming to the port, and they're just essentially just sitting there in in some ways sort of marooned, right, waiting to come back in, uh, and you know it's 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 also important to remember as well that the folks who are crewing these ships, uh, oftentimes you know during COVID they were still doing this work, but they would they would be banned or they would be prohibited from coming on shore uh, due to COVID restrictions. So, you know, uh, you really gotta salute the, the men and women who are working these ships because of the conditions that they're working under right now. Uh, and the amount of time that they're sitting out waiting to come to shore and know that when they do come, when they do, when those ships are berthed, there's gonna be just as much pressure to get those ships unloaded uh, and moving again uh, you know so there really isn't a whole lot of time for them to uh, put their feet up and relax
1: john john are you, are you hearing any um uh plans coming out of washington on as far as from government on what uh solutions or possibilities might be to to, to aid this situation
2: yeah you know i gotta tell you we were really proud to uh, sit down with the white house about two weeks ago uh, where we were able to bring a number of our members, uh, Walmart, Target, uh, FedEx, UPS, Samsung, and Home Depot. And you know, we sat down with the ports of LA and Long Beach uh, and we made a handshake commitment to uh, uh, essentially sh- move certain amount of containers uh, off the ports during the nighttime hours. Uh, and I think this was an important commitment because one, you know, these companies that stepped up, uh, did so certainly at, at expense for them, but what it does do is it opens up uh, capacity uh, for small and medium sized businesses during the daytime hours. Um, and I think, you know, it, this is one important step towards moving towards what what we think should be 24 seven operations across the board. You know, a, a second thing that we're doing with the administration, and I think is we're working with them to inform their decision-making process uh, on, on solutions bring forward. So we've, we've had members who have visited uh, the ports with, um, with uh, White House leadership and done a tour and a walkthrough of, uh, of the operations of the ports to understand where there are opportunities to make operational improvements. And I think those conversations have been very successful. You know, I think bottom line, a lot of the conversations and a lot of the work the White House is doing right now, uh, you know, are not going to result in huge changes or a solution to this problem within the next three or four months. But what is important is that we're bringing everyone to the table.
0: We're looking to resolve problems in real time. And ideally, you know, once we get through this year, those conversations are gonna only continue.
2: And with the passage of an infrastructure bill that I think will bring needed investment, Uh, into our port facilities, um, you know, and and ideally, as well as looking at uh, keeping the focus on how we can improve the the operations of these ports going forward with long-term solutions and not just these quick solutions. Ideally, if if we keep the focus on, I think this will result in some uh, long-term changes that will make our ports much more competitive, not just uh, at LA and Long Beach, um, but also make them more competitive uh, if you look at other ports around the world.
1: John one last uh, John one last question for you uh, that's coming to us from Stu and Stu's asking what do you think the length of time will be how long will it will take to, to fix this this challenge that we have
2: yeah you know, that's a good question I'm hearing that a lot um, and you know there's there's certainly uh, there's certainly a range of opinion on this um, you know as I said at the top of the call this This situation that we're in right now uh, was a long-term in the making, Uh, and it's gonna be a long time before we get out of it. Uh, You know, I think, and I think there's also gonna be some uh, some headwinds going into next year that will probably prolong the crisis that we're in today. Specifically, those two two events that I think will will help those headwinds uh, is we've got the Chinese New Year that'll happen early next year that always results in a slowdown of goods coming from, uh, uh, from Asian ports here to the US. And the second thing, and probably just as important, if not more so, is that uh, the summer of next year, uh, the longshoremen are expected to renew their contracts with the West Coast ports. And, you know, I think anyone who tracks these negotiations will tell you that there's always a lot of uncertainty. Uh, there's always work slowdowns uh, and other disruptions uh, because these negotiations can get really tense really quickly. And I think if you look the, at those two events, plus just the sheer amount of containers and chassis that are piling up at our ports and the amount of time it's taking to move them, I think it's very easy to estimate that the the challenges we're seeing right now will last uh, well into third quarter of 2022, if not, and probably beyond that.
1: John, thank you for being with us today. We thank you for your leadership on this uh, important issue to uh, everyone and uh, thank you for all that you and the U.S. Chamber of Commerce do on behalf of uh, uh, businesses and and all all communities and cities throughout the country
2: well thank you so much for the opportunity thank you for the opportunity to speak before your members and um and look forward to visiting you all uh sometime soon thank you
1: very very good thank you all right we're going to bring things a little closer to home now and uh uh, we're going to be talking to uh a gentleman from the the country's fourth largest port. And uh, you may have have seen uh, uh, some of the things floating, some of the ships floating around the Savannah uh, Harbor. And and Jamie McCurry is gonna talk to us about what's going on at the Savannah port. And uh, uh, Jamie, thank you for joining us today. We're delighted to have you.
3: My pleasure. Um, Certainly not much of a better view uh, than from Hilton Head Island on the the beach, looking at whether we do or don't have any ships uh, waiting to come into port, but um, you know, John uh, really covered the whole subject very well. I think had a lot of uh, points that that we see on a, on a daily basis, uh, you know, right now uh, we come in uh, each day and we're seeing, you know, between 22 and sometimes as much as 26 uh, ships at anchor uh, waiting to come in, which is um, highly unusual uh, for Savannah and We're we're very fortunate here to have. Uh, the single largest container terminal facility uh, in the country, but frankly, the Western Hemisphere. And um, that's afforded us a lot of space to continue to grow and to accommodate um, surges in cargo like we typically see uh, this time of year. And normally, uh, it would not be uh, very unusual at all to have a ship or two in anchor waiting to, to come in just uh, based on traffic uh, or Title delay or something like that, but to have a couple dozen uh, is definitely not uh, typical for for Savannah. Um, you know, I think th- there's not a whole lot that I could add to to John's comments about you know what's going on in general uh, and really the, the specifics here at so in Savannah fit that general description of the disruptions. But you know, I think that it's important to point out that you know workforce as a whole. Uh, may arguably be the the biggest factor here Um, with uh, a supply chain that is not in any way designed to be turned off and back on again. uh, It's not surprising that you would see uh, a ripple effect of what happened, um, you know, 18 months ago, or slightly longer than that when China shut down because of COVID and, and how that played out. But when so many Americans are at home uh, not able to travel, um, not able to go out to eat very much, or, or even pick up to goes that much, they start spending their money because many of them continue to have that money uh, on sh- you know, e-commerce shopping uh, more than anything else. And that really drove the depletion in inventories back then, but also uh, the retailers, uh, their kind of corrective behavior to dipping inventories was to uh, really we, we've kind of said instead of buying on a just-in-time basis, uh, they have stocked up on a just-in-case basis. And so the, the amount of inventory that they've tried to, to build back uh, is you know, much larger than what was before. Uh, Americans have continued to shop at a much higher rate uh, than what had been in the normal rate. And so the, what has happened at many ports, Uh, and and certainly has happened here is that you've got this surge of import cargo that the facilities, uh, even the biggest facility with the most cranes, like Savannah, uh, simply cannot absorb all at once. And even those that can uh, handle the ships as fast as they need to be handled. uh, There's not enough truck drivers and there's not enough people working in the warehouses to process those import boxes out of the ports. So we have seen. Uh, import boxes staying on terminal uh, two and three times as long as normal, uh, which if you think about the context of the capacity of the the facility, and again, this facility, the Garden City container terminal being 1300 acres, uh, we have designed it to handle uh, surges of about 20 percent, so that we could handle on any given day 20 percent more than the annualized uh, volume of cargo that would flow through the place. well, we would have needed to have 100% more capacity in some cases to handle the extended dwell times uh, on terminal of these boxes. And, and the again, the biggest factor there really is a workforce issue. It's not that uh, the truck drivers are failing. It's just there's not enough of them and not enough power. And those trucks can only turn as fast as they can flow through the port terminals as well as how fast they can you know drop off and get back with uh, containers from the inland destination which has to do with the workforce factor as well of how are they uh, the warehouses facilities able to process those import containers kind of in one side of the building and out the other and then there's the truck from the warehouse to the store itself and the ability to process that. And that's really where the system is kind of broken down is the uh, ability to process all of the consumption uh, that we have uh, kind of endeavored to to pass through. So um, frankly, the the port terminals uh, around the country are generally uh, built to a capacity that we could handle this surge in volume if it could flow in and out uh, as fast as normal. Um, again, I, I said that we've, we're seeing dwell times on terminal of two and three times normal. To be more specific about that, an import box would typically be on terminal between one and three days, maybe sometimes four days. Right now, the average is about seven. And in many cases, it's as high as 12 to 14. And that's that's really where the, the problem has come in in our world. So I'm not sure if uh, that's a, a good place to, to jump off to some Q&A, but I'm happy to, to keep on talking as much as you want, Bill.
1: All right, thank you. We have a, a question from Michael, and Michael's asking what the Port of Savannah, as a consumer, what does the Port of Savannah mean to us?
3: Well, so Savannah is the load center port for the Southeastern United States. we are, uh, particularly when it comes to Asian trade, we are you know, the predominant player uh, in this region for Asian trade, and um, you know, and I'm sure that most of the folks on the call uh, understand that that is the largest trading partner that we have as, as a country. Uh, so both imports and exports, uh, that, that's a vital uh, route. Um, for you as a consumer, uh, I guess, theoretically, that would tend to lead to lower uh, transportation costs to the places that you would be buying it from. Uh, what you have seen, uh, particularly as e-commerce has continue to expand not just amazon but really all the large retailers as you see these uh, fulfillment centers popping up uh, in close proximity to the consumption zone so whatever the the metropolitan area is uh, and in the case uh, of a place like savannah you've got the the processing that happens before you go to a fulfillment center which is where the you know, a, a package gets put onto a delivery van to come to your house. So all that's happening, um, you know, in this region close by. So that's, that's good for timeliness of deliveries. It's, uh, again, theoretically good for the cost of deliveries. It's certainly good for employment. Um, and there's a lot of opportunities around all
1: that. All right, Stu is asking if the, the Savannah port has any plan to be able to uh, increase additional shifts within a 24 hour period.
3: Well, we're adding uh, a considerable amount of terminal capacity right now. We've got a, another uh, 600,000, what we call TEUs or 20 foot equivalent units uh, of capacity will be coming online uh, by the end of this calendar year, uh, as well as uh, another, uh, kind of similar capacity addition that'll come online uh, in the next 18 months. On top of that, we are in the process of modifying one of our, um, our, actually our oldest container berth to be able to better handle the larger ships. And all of that will feed into the, uh, the velocity of how fast we're able to accommodate the ships. Uh, but again, we, we would be able to process ships much faster than we are right now. If we had consistent room on the terminal, um, but that's, that's being compromised by the, the amount of time that these boxes are staying on terminals. So being able to have additional storage capacity will in and of itself help the, the dock side work, if you will, to, to move the ships themselves faster. Uh, another thing that John mentioned, um, or, or a point that I guess was a question that was raised about retailers buying or leasing their own ships. Uh, in addition to that fact happening, there are a, a number of what we call extra loaders which are vessels in addition to those that are typically scheduled on a weekly basis that are being, you know, in some cases, we're getting a week or less warning that they're coming. And that's been a factor in what you are seeing in terms of port delays. So it's not as much the ability of the ports to handle the regular schedule of ships coming and going, but that plus a significant additional uh, level of
1: traffic that's coming and going. Jamie, Tom is asking, why are the per container cost fees rising so quickly?
3: Well, it's a, I think a supply and demand issue. It's, and it's the spot rate. So if you're a Walmart or pick anybody else and you've got a fixed contract for a year, you know, that that rate is what it is. Um, But if you're, I'll make up a company, Joe's uniforms, and you need, you know, a single container shipped from uh, Shanghai to Savannah uh, full of uh, aprons and, and t-shirts and pants or whatever the uniforms may be. That's you're going to, you know, schedule and get a spot rate. Uh, those spot rates, because the large retailers are consuming so much of the capacity on these ships, um, those spot rates have been, you know, through the roof. Uh, and it, again, it's, it's a supply and demand issue. We are starting to see uh, some of those spot rates come down. Uh, but you know, the, it's not an exaggeration to say that you have seen some examples of a 10x multiplier and uh, what those spot rates might be for a particular shipper.
1: Jamie, thank you for joining us today. Uh, certainly, very, very helpful. Uh, Jamie is the Chief Administrative Officer for the support the uh, ports of the Port of Georgia. And we're delighted to have you with us, and thanks for sharing it, and we'll continue to stay in touch so our listeners can learn more of the very important topic and what you all are doing to help.
3: My pleasure. Thank you very much.
1: All right. We're going to bring things even closer to home now, and one of the topics that's very hot out there is the William Hilton Parkway Gateway Project. And here to talk about that and the town of Hilton Head Island's role in that is and just how important it is is the project manager uh sean collin uh sean's the senior advisor to the hilton head island town manager and then also sean will be introducing the town's consultant ms mksk who is part of the project sean uh, it's an important task you have in front of you and we appreciate uh, you being with us today yeah good morning bill thanks for having me it's so, so important i haven't shaved in the last few days trying to
4: maximize time for this project um <laughs> Well, thanks for thanks for having me. Um, I think the star of the show you want to hear from is Brian Kinzelman, our consultant. But I want to just give a brief overview. Um, you now we've been working for the last seven or eight months to evaluate this important project for the town of Hilton Head, the, the county and the region, you know, it was a, the only land um, connection to the mainland. This is this is a, a very important project and endeavor um with 75 year uh, life expectancy of the bridges it's sort of a generational um uh, project and, and we're happy to be involved i'm happy to serve as project lead for the town um what we've done over the past several months is really do a fundamental review end-to-end of the of the proposed project we've looked beyond the project limits as proposed from the county and the state too to see what the impacts Uh, would be downstream on the Cross Island Parkway um, and on the business route as well. And um, what what has really been a benefit is a series of community engagements and discussions with town council um, to help develop these recommendations to translate the local um, community expectations um, and be able to translate those in a way um, that enhance the project We have looked at validation of key um, performance, fundamental performance um, goals that were part of what was shared in the environmental assessment um, here over the summer. Uh, And we've we've done a good job monitoring public input and community feedback uh, that we received at the town that the the, uh, project manager, DOT, has received as well. and we, we sort of reached a milestone on October 12th. Um, these local concepts and recommendations that have been refined uh, from April all the way through October, um, were presented to town council and they endorsed um, this local, preferred local position. Um, and we've been able to share these recommendations with the county as a project sponsor, and uh, the state as the agency managing the project for the county. Um, and re- we've received some positive feedback. Um, we'll continue discussions with them moving forward. I wanna thank the County Administrator and his staff uh, along with state uh, and DOT leadership for their continued willingness to work together to get this project right. Um, and that's the ultimate goal. We wanna get the project right. Uh, we want it to meet the expectations of the local community and, um, and be uh, something that we're proud of at the end of the day. Um, we have Brian Kinslin. Uh, he's been our lead uh, project consultant with MKSK. Um, we've also had a HDR, a transportation engineering consultant, to provide some support um, and validation to a lot of the recommendations that have been developed. Uh, but I'd like to turn it over to Brian with MKSK to kind of go through these recommendations and concepts uh, with you today, and then we can answer questions that you, you may have.
5: Uh, Brian? Great. Thanks, Sean, Uh, great summary. I want to dive right in, uh, if I may, with our recommendations uh, uh, slide deck to give everybody a broad understanding of the process we've been through that Sean just summarized and the recommendations that have come out the, uh, the end of that public process. So I'm going to share my screen, if I may. I'm going to try to share my screen. There we go. Can everyone see that? I trust you can. Uh, I'm gonna. Not,
4: not yet, Brian. I, I don't. I don't think we can see it.
5: Well, uh, let me see how I can do this, Sean, because I've got it here. How's that? There you go. There we go. My apologies, folks. Um, As as Sean had suggested, we've been through the last few months a fairly extensive uh, public engagement process to take the uh, local opinion on uh, the proposition that is put forth thus far, uh, the county project, as he had suggested, uh, that is uh, uh, being uh, uh, prepared by the by the uh, by the state. Um, Our objective was to bring that local knowledge and community based understanding to the DOT preferred alternative to get the local flavor as it were the local opinion. Uh, So we were uh, um, engaged to create a gateway to the island, not just moving automobiles and trucks, which is uh, extremely important, as we just heard from the uh, gentleman earlier, but uh, it's about creating uh, an emotional uh, and an attractive and an environmentally correct approach to the island. So the the fixing the transportation issues was the first problem to be solved by the county and in town and DOT, but we've added two more, and that is to uh, improve the quality of life, not just move automobiles faster, but move them safer and take into consideration that this is a a place where people live and work and, and play, and also to create that that gateway onto the island. Uh, As we all know, coming uh, west to east, once you get that that broad view of the open water, uh, it is uh, quite an emotional charge. And we want to encourage that with fine bridge architecture and uh, roadway corridor. So we've broken the project down into four zones, starting at uh, Moss Creek uh, intersection and moving to uh, essentially the cross island through the Stony neighborhood. We've looked at each of those individually. But corridor wide, we've looked to reduce the travel lanes to the extent possible, still providing for adequate and safe movement of automobiles, but reducing the amount of property that's impacted Looking at details such as raised curbs for the medians, varying the alignment of the roadway. So it's not uh, so much a a drag strip or a speedway, but something that is more of a meandering parkway, which is consistent with the rest of the island. Uh, Take advantage of some of the town owned property to help those improvements to happen. Look at smart signal technology that moves automobiles and truck traffic more efficiently, Uh, thinking always of trails for pedestrians and bicyclists, not just for automobiles and truck traffic, uh, and have that that comprehensive system of trails uh, that is consistent with uh, the attitudes of the island. And always encouraging those beautiful views uh, to the water, which is in fact um, the signature of the island. Uh, So those are issues that we've applied across all um, geographic areas of the corridor, but specifically to those four geographies at Moss Creek. We've suggested that this is really where the experience of entering Hilton Head Island begins. As you leave the Moss Creek intersection moving eastbound, you come underneath the uh, flyover of the Bluffton Parkway and and that's your gateway experience. That's where we want to capture people's uh, attention relative to signage and landscape and bridge architecture and the like. Not on the island, but speaking to the island. The bridges themselves, we want to reduce the bridge mass, again, uh, always providing for proper traffic movement, but to increase uh, the non-motorized trail, the, the bike trail that does not exist there today so that we can move pedestrians and bicyclists from. Bluffin, Bluffton and the mainland onto uh, the islands, uh, and and also think about the the bridge architecture as this moves forward. What are the details of the railings and the parapet walls, uh, the the color and the texture of the concrete and the materials? Those are all important aesthetic issues, and think about the breakdown lanes. We need breakdown lanes as uh, as evidence time to time as we have um, disabled vehicles on the bridge. But uh, let's do that uh, smartly. So the local alternative recommends instead of one big broad deck to have two bridges, the same number of travel lanes, reduce the travel lanes to the extent possible, provide for a uh, enhanced bridge architecture and uh, a slightly uh, widened Pedestrian and trail system with overlooks, two of them, or 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 possibly more, overlooking the deep water that is the crossing from the mainland. On to Jenkins Island as the the bridge passes from Pinckney on to Jenkins, to consolidate the access uh, curb cuts and intersections to one single uh, intersection at Windmill Harbor and to create that as a signalized intersection so that we don't have folks um, uh, inadvertently uh, interrupting traffic flow. A, a uh, overall graphic of what that may look like, uh, again, undulating the alignment of the roadway, creating a broader median so that you're not looking at six lanes of traffic. You're looking at three lanes of traffic within which you, you are, are motoring. Uh, eliminating the Jenkins Road intersection and again relocating it to the uh, to the windmill intersection, eliminating at windmill uh, the uh, uh, crossing for pedestrians and bicyclists, and to uh, as you can see in this graphic. To uh, allow for the green signal for the flow-through traffic to be um, uh, more of the priority to keep traffic moving, but still safe passageway for pedestrians and bicyclists underneath the new bridges, so that we've got interconnectedness on both sides of the uh, of the corridor with bicycles. On to Stony, which, as we all know, is the is the tightest segment of the uh, of the corridor, given uh, private property. Uh, we've suggested that we continue with traditional left turn lanes and intuitive intersection configurations uh, and and as opposed to some of the U-turn configurations that the original proposal had suggested. Um, uh, eliminate uh, left turn motions in that eastbound direction onto Wild Horse, old Wild Horse, I should say. That's a neighborhood street, uh, very small in scale and uh, we didn't think it was uh, appropriate necessarily introduce more traffic. Uh, always showcase the Gullah Geechee culture and the history of this significant neighborhood. And that can be done through uh, maybe the enhancement of some park space that is town owned on the south side of the uh, corridor moving forward. Uh, also a longer term policy for town consumption, not for DOT, and that is to consider a a, a next generation uh, plan or strategy for the Stony neighborhood, uh, and uh, also to entertain a not-for-profit development corporation that may be a tool for the advancement of not just Stony, but other redevelopment districts on the island. So through Stony, this suggests, let's let's again reduce the lane width, let's take as little property as we have to, let's consolidate curb cuts, uh let's enhance the landscape of the median so that those folks that live and work on that section of the corridor aren't looking at six lanes of traffic and enhance the landscape treatment on the outboard side of the corridor so those residents and businesses uh again are protected from the roadway itself left turn motions two lane left turn motions on to squire pope uh, to satisfy the traffic needs uh, into uh, Hilt Head Plantation and the businesses on Squire Pope. Uh, again, the elimination of a turning motion onto uh, Old Wild Horse and protect that, uh, that neighborhood street. Some modest improvements at Spanish Wells and Wild Horse Intersection, continuing to have those left turn motions. So it's a fully functioning intersection, but moving more efficiently and safely. So as a whole, the picture of the stony neighborhood suggests that we have this, uh, again, a a, a town initiative of a new uh, marsh front uh, park that's on the south side of the corridor, uh, having a median uh, that that, uh, brings attractiveness to the whole corridor, minimizing the curb cuts out onto the parkway to the extent possible and making for more intuitive and safer intersections. So all of that uh, again. Uh, this is a reiteration of what was stated before. A, uh, a listing of of corridor wide recommendations and then the zone specific recommendations, as was just stepped through graphically. Uh, as uh, uh, as Sean had suggested, conversations with the county and and the state continue, uh, and further coordination with project partners is is an ongoing process as this moves into final planning and design so with that i'm happy to answer any questions you all may have
1: thank you for that we appreciate the uh the update i have a few questions for you and and uh, brian and sean you you answer them as you see fit uh or the proper person to do so the first question is coming to us from melinda and melinda is asking about turning the old bridge into a linear park uh, has been something that's been discussed. And you, what do you see as the possibility of that becoming a reality? Yeah, I'll, I'll take that one, Brian, if you don't mind. Um, yeah, that was a concept that was
4: um, evaluated and vetted by all all the, the project partners, the town, the county, the state, uh, and the community. Uh, there are some limitations with, um, it, with that treatment and that, um, it's a state, currently it's a state asset. Uh, the state um, would not object if the county or the town would like to take over ownership of that facility. Um, it, that um, would entail a significant maintenance, ongoing annual maintenance uh, budget. And it also has impacts um, to the overall project on constructability, um, makes it a little harder to phase the project It may add a couple more years to, to the to the project schedule. And I think at this point, our local recommendation um, has has not included that uh, as an item to move forward. Um, I believe the town and the county uh, and the state have sort of general agreement that that a new uh, a new bridge with bike and pet facilities is a more cost effective
1: um, treatment uh, for consideration. Thank you. Thank you for that clarification, Sean. And the next question is coming from Stuart. And Stuart is asking, have computer simulations been run to validate that the project design will deliver greater throughput of traffic through the existing traffic lights on the island? I guess I'll take that one, too, Brian, if you don't don't mind. Yes, that's right. How long do we have, Bill? Uh, I'll I'll try
4: to keep this brief. So KCI, the. uh, The county's uh, uh, transportation engineering firm on the project had done computer simulations. They had developed a baseline based on existing conditions and sort of a no-build. They evaluated their preferred alternative that was part of the environmental assessment and shared to the public hearing. Um, They did uh, computer simulations um, on those alternatives as well as the uh, intersection movements Um, We've done additional work on simulations to understand travel time differences, especially with the intersection movements and the uh, alternative that was presented by uh, DOT on behalf of the county this summer, and that also our alternative. Uh, One final note is we've asked HDR, our transportation engineering consultants, um, to develop that end-to-end calculation and simulation and so we'll have that available here as we continue discussions uh, sometime here in the, in, the, in the very near future.
1: OK, uh, question here from Thomas. Thomas is asking that uh, saying that a, a light at Windmill Harbor seems counterintuitive and somewhat dangerous considering the speed of the bridge. And why does MKSK think that that's the best option?
5: Sean, I can touch upon that, uh, if I may. We've, uh, as, as we've suggested, the entire corridor is going from two lanes to three lanes. So by definition, there's more capacity. Also, the uh, the speed of the, of the corridor is 40 to 45 miles an hour, I believe, Sean, uh, posted speed. Uh, the geometry of the bridge, the new bridge, as it enters onto Jenkins Island is a broader curve with, Better visibility. Uh, and with smart signal technology, uh, we've got to accommodate those north-south movements for those in windmill and those uh, uh, moving to the to the north of the corridor. But with that smart signal technology, that signal is uh, vastly green in the throughput uh, direction. Again, we've removed uh, pedestrian and bicycle crossing at that intersection, which even further allows for the the green signal to uh, increase in the east-west throughput. So we've got to provide for local access to residents and businesses while we're also providing for throughput from moving east to west. So all users uh, need to be satisfied.
1: Brian, thank you for that. And another question coming from Jeffrey. Jeffrey is asking, from the beginning uh, to the end, what will that timeframe look like as far as uh, the start of the new bridge to the completion date? I'll jump in there, Brian. So I can just give you the general schedule that's been
4: proposed by DOT as the managing project, uh, or the project manager for the county. Um, Getting through this preferred alternative and this initial alignment is a key step. Uh, We're getting approval from the Federal Highway Administration. Uh, There will be another um, year and a half or so, two years of detailed design work. Um, And then they're proposing, if it's a new um, six-lane bridge or two, three-lane bridges, um, that'll it be approximately three-year construction period uh, once they have all their permits in place. So, you know, we're probably looking at four, five or so years from now um to have a a new
1: facility and corridor um, in place and open all right sean and brian thank you so much for being with us very interesting information uh sean on the the slides if we wanted to uh, make people where can people find those where would you suggest they go to the town's website uh yes sir we've got a project page for the gateway corridor project it's got all the, all the presentations
4: that MKSK has made over the series of discussions with council. And so uh, also links to the DOT preferred alternative and environmental assessment and their uh, materials. So town's website would be a great landing point for information.
1: All right, thank you both for joining us today. Very informative and we appreciate your time. Thanks for having us. Our next speaker this morning, we're gonna shift gears and knowing that uh, uh, how Concord d'Elegance has become one of the state's marquee events and also one that has the state's highest net worth event, something that maybe we didn't know, uh, but it's uh, good to good to know that. And also, you don't have to be a car buff to enjoy their, one of the region's biggest and best weekends. And so if you like cars, great. And if you don't, it's still something you want to see. And here today to talk to us about this year's show is the president of the Hilton Head Island Concorde d'Elegance. Lindsay Harrell. Lindsay, welcome and tell us about uh, the show and what we're gonna see in, a, in uh, just a few days.
0: Thank you, Bill. Thanks for having me. Um, we're really excited. Um, we had a year off and what the year off gave us was a lot of time to plan for this year. And we have our largest event ever planned for this uh, this coming next weekend, actually, on the island. Um, We have seen record ticket sales. We have a record number of cars planning to attend. And Bill, to your point, you do not have to be a car person to enjoy this show. Um, When I started at this event um, way back when, I won't say how long ago that was, but um, I was not a car person. I have quickly become one, though. But these are not cars. These are works of art. So you can appreciate them whether you love cars, or you just like admiring something pretty with a cool interior. Um, But we've got this year, as I mentioned, a record number of cars. And I just wanna spend some time going through some highlights of some things we're really excited to share with everybody next weekend. Uh, The Concours itself, which is the Sunday show, Sunday, November 7th at the Port Royal Golf Club, that is the finale of the whole event. That is the heartbeat of who we are. It's the basis for what we were founded for. Um, We have over 250 cars and motorcycles that will be a part of that show on Sunday. And that is about 50 more than we normally have, actually over 50 more than we normally have. Um, and we've got a couple of really special features this year that we're really excited about. Stuts is our honored mark. Um, for those of you who do not know what a Stutz is, don't worry, I didn't either, again, before I started this job. But um, Stutzes were uh, pre-war cars made in the early 1900s into the 1930s, and we are going to have, to our knowledge, the largest collection of Stuts on display at one time. Um, I think the only other event that's come close is Pebble Beach. So we're kind of neck and neck with Pebble Beach, which um, if you're familiar in the Concours world, Pebble Beach Concours is kind of the granddaddy of all of the American events. Um, we're going to have 26 different stutzes on display ranging from as early as 1914 to 1937. We're going to have an anniversary class this year for the 100th anniversary of the Moto Guzzi motorcycle, which is really special. And we've got a A new sponsor joining us this year with new Moto Guzzi's as well to celebrate that. We've got some new classes to bring in some younger fans. Um, Prior to this year, our Concours always been dedicated to vehicles that are 1973 or earlier. And this year we've expanded. We're welcoming some newer makes and models to the show to help draw in a younger audience. So we've got a class of homologation specials. And if you don't know what a homologation car is, I can give you a quick synopsis. Um, it's essentially when a manufacturer wants to make a race car, they've got to make a, a limited number of production models uh, for testing purposes. So they're, they're limited number models. They're very cool. They're newer. Um, some examples that you'll see there are a 2006 Ford GT and a 2003 Panos. Um, we've got a two classes of what we're calling future classics um, of the 20th and 21st centuries, and that's going to be a really cool, sexy class. We're going to have a 1995 Acura NSX, which is a very cool car if you're not familiar with that, a 1991 Ferrari F40, and a 2012 Mercedes-Benz AMG, the Gold Wing, which is always really fun to see. And these are just a few examples. I'm not going to give you everything. You've got to come to the show if you want to see it all. Um, and then we've got a new class this year, which is really special. It's the AC Cobra family class. And we're going to have nine Shelby Cobras out there on display, which Shelby Cobras are very rare, so this is a really unique class. One of the cars is coming from um, former racer, legendary racer Bobby Rahal, who's been our honorary chairman in the past. He's coming back this year to bring his car to compete. And we've got a 1965 Shelby Cobra that's coming that was formerly owned by the Fast and Furious star Paul Walker, So we've got amazing cars on display for the Concours, new things you've never seen before at the show. And we're gonna have over 90 judges from throughout the entire country and some from Canada that are coming in to help us judge all of these cars. And that's just Sunday. So um, Saturday is our car club showcase. We will have um, some new themes that we've never featured before. We're gonna have an auto Italia theme and an American power and ingenuity theme. So um, those will be displayed on the fairways at the Portwell Golf Club um, and will be a lot of fun and something we've never done before. We will be hosting the first ever Legends of the Autobahn event on the East Coast. That is a um, partnership between the BMW, Mercedes and Audi Clubs of America. They host this event annually in Monterey as part of the Pebble Beach Monterey Car Week. Um, This is the first time they're hosting it on the East Coast and they picked Hilton Head to host it. So we're thrilled to have that. That is going to be also at the Portwell Golf Club That is 150 additional cars that we'll have on display on Saturday, included with your Saturday ticket. There's no extra charge to see that piece of the show. Um, And then of course, we've got the Aero Expo at the Hilton Head Island Airport, where we'll have a number of amazing aircraft on display paired with Concorde cars. And we've got a lot of new uh, aircraft coming in this year, flying in this year. We've got some stagger wings, which are really special. We've never featured those before. We've got a 1957 Lockheed. We've got a uh, 2021 Beach King Air um, and a helicopter from the Coast Guard. So we're gonna have a lot going on Saturday and Sunday. I also wanna just point out some special features that we're gonna have this year, Bill. Um, We're featuring again, our Women Driving America program, which we started in 2019. And we have seen um, an increase of over 50% in female participants in our event, just from 2019 to 2021. So we will have a number of female owned cars on display and we have a number of incredible female judges that are that are joining us and judging the concours with us on Sunday. Um, and one of my favorites that you'll see out there is Lynn St. James, who if you don't know her name she is a legendary race car driver. She was the first female Indy 500 Rookie of the Year and this will be her first time joining us at this portion of the event. She's never been to the Hilton Head Island concourse side before. So we're really excited to have her here and joining us as part of our Women Driving America program. We're featuring electric cars. That's the hot topic, right? I think everyone has heard of an electric car at this point in time. Um, And we're gonna showcase the history and present of electric cars. And a lot of people don't realize this, but electric cars were actually made in the early 1900s. So we're gonna have 10 cars there that range from 1901 to 1932. And then we'll have a lot of new cars and new technology on display from BMW, McLaren, Tesla. So it's going to be really a story of the whole life of the electric vehicle from where it started to where it's come. Um, And we've had some amazing people helping us source the cars for that exhibit, which has been a lot of fun. A couple other quick special cars that you won't want to miss. Um, We are partnering with the Haggerty Driver Foundation again this year with the National Historic Vehicle Register. They're going to be bringing in four spectacular cars off of the National Register. Um, Again, I'm not going to give them all away, but I'll share two of them with you. One is the first ever passenger Duesenberg. It's famously known as the Castle Duesenberg that's coming in from the Auburn Corps Duesenberg Museum. And the other one is complete opposite the Lamborghini Countach that was featured in the movie Cannonball Run. So it'll be a a vast display, four cars out of the 30 cars on the national register will be here with us next weekend. Um, And we will have from the Peterson Museum in Los Angeles, they are bringing in for us from Speed Racer, the Mach 5 Racer, which will be on display on our Driving Young America Boulevard, both Saturday and Sunday. So if you were a fan at all of that show, come out and see it, it is wild looking. Um a few events happening in the community that I want to let you know about in addition to the main events at the Port Royal Golf Club. If you come out to the show on Saturday, stay around after our awards ceremony. Um from four to six, we do host our Satisfy Your Thirst after party, which is presented by our partners at Haggerty. That's from four to six o'clock. It's behind the clubhouse at the Port Royal Golf Club. It's not an extra ticket. We have live music from the Synergy Twins. Um, They're electric violinists from the Greenville, South Carolina area. And we have 11 different vendors offering tastings um, from local distilleries, breweries, and wineries. So it's actually a really fun event. It's kind of one of our hidden gems that not a lot of people know about just yet, but it's a really fun way to finish the day on Saturday. We have a lot of walking tours this year and seminars and detailing demonstrations that are happening throughout the weekend. Um, One of my favorites is on Saturday, we will be hosting our Designers Greatest Hits tour, where the featured designers that come in and support the event and support our charity will be doing a walking tour on property on Saturday and taking you around to their favorite cars on the field. And this year's designers are Maury Callum, who just retired as the head of design from Ford. Greg Metros, who just retired from the head of design of trucks and SUVs at Ford, so the new Ford Bronco that everyone's loving, he is responsible for that design. We have a gentleman named Michael Simcoe coming in from Detroit. He is the head of design currently for General Motors. We have another gentleman retired who was a special um, vehicle designer at GM. His name is Kip Wasenko. And one of our tried and true designers that we love having every year is Jay Ward from Pixar Animation Studios. So those five guys will be taking you around the show field to their favorite cars on Saturday. It's a really special kind of intimate experience that you don't get a lot at a lot of other concourse. We're proud that we get to do that here at Hilton Head. Um, And then outside of what we host, there are a few other events in the community Next week that I think are fun to point out, um, there's the Grand Motoring Film Festival on Thursday night at the Art Center of Coastal Carolina. It's an 80s themed night, and they're gonna be featuring the Secret Race Across America, which is a documentary about the uh, the Cannonball Run. So that event is Thursday night at the Art Center. It's from five to nine. It includes a cocktail party and an 80s themed car display outside of the Art Center. It's $55 a person. It's a lot of fun, and it's a really fun way to start the weekend. Michael Anthony's is hosting a tableside wine dinner on Thursday night as well. Um, they have reservations ranging from 530 to seven. And Nunzio's is hosting their Diamonds of the Kitchen truffle dinner on Wednesday night at 632. And these are all part of the Concourse schedule. Um, information for all of these events can be found on our schedule page on hhiconcord.com, But um, we're really excited as you can tell. I, I hope you can sense my enthusiasm. Um, <laughs> And then just last, before I close it out and open it to questions, I do want to point out from the charity side what we're doing this year. Um, Coming out of last year, which was a challenging year, not being able to host our event or raise money, um, we weren't really sure how we were going to do from the charity angle, but our Driving Young America Fund and the committee behind that fund have dedicated to give out six different scholarships um, in six different categories to support students who want to be in the automotive or aviation industries. So we're donating $30,000 in scholarships this fall during the event this year for a Tools for techs program, an aviation program, a motorsports program, an automotive restoration program, a female initiative to make sure we support females in this industry as well, and also one scholarship that is dedicated to a student in Beaufort County who wants to pursue an automotive career. So we're really excited to be you know, pushing our charitable cause and supporting students that want to help move this industry forward. Um, we're really excited to be back at Port Royal. Our partners there have just been amazing and the Westin has been amazing. And we hope everyone here today will come out and join us next weekend. So if there are any questions, I'm happy to take questions.
1: Lindsay, thank you. That was a yeah. comprehensive update and uh, <laughs> your, uh, your passion and enthusiasm I can tell will, will lead to a great week on Hilton Head Island with the Concord d'Elegance. We do have a couple of questions for you. One is coming from Robert, and Robert is asking if there are any tickets left for the Friday night flights and fancy.
0: Unfortunately, that event is sold out. I would say all of our hospitality events have sold; they've sold out faster than we've ever seen before this year, and our ticket sales have just gone crazy. I think it's a combination of you know people missing the event from last year and and people you know itching to get out after COVID. So unfortunately, our flights and fancy is sold out.
1: Congratulations on the, the number of tickets that have been sold as well as the number of exhibitors and the largest ever on both cases is certainly a, a tribute to, uh, to you, your board, and your volunteers and the community thanks each of you for your, your service and what you do to, to make this such a great event. One last question I see here is uh, uh, Steve is asking what the, what the number of attendees you expect to have during the weekend.
0: Uh, it's, it's hard to tell. I mean, our our advanced online sales for general admission are up amazingly high. Um, the last I saw was at the end of um, September. I'm sorry, at the middle of October. And at that point, we were our general admission alone was up 300 percent. So we have been spending the last few weeks prepping for bigger crowds changing our food orders, changing our shuttles, adding more restrooms, things glamorous things like that. Um, but we are, we are preparing for a larger crowd. If the weather is good and day of sales are strong, we're definitely going to see our biggest crowd ever.
1: Well, that, that's super. And uh, you won't wanna miss it November five through seven at Port Royal and go out and support and just have a, a wonderful time because it's an event. If you haven't been to it before, it's just a fun, fun day and uh lindsay thank you for for joining us today thank and you best, bill best of luck for for the up, upcoming weekend
0: thank you thank you everybody hope to see you at the show
1: very good lindsay harrell talking all things concord elegance as we get ready to close out today i just uh, first of all want to remind everyone of another wonderful event that's taking place and that's crescendo crescendo will be happening uh all through up until uh, through november the 13th so if you haven't had a chance to participate in any of those uh, events, I would certainly encourage you to do so. And thank you for being with us today. We're very appreciative of your time. We're very appreciative of our speaker's time. And uh, also, as we close out, I simply want to say, be kind. It's very important that we all <laughs> would be kind and stay safe and don't forget to love each other. Have a great rest of your day.
0: Thanks everybody for listening to the Chamber Channel's Power Hour. We encourage you to tune in for future episodes. Never miss one by subscribing to our channel on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Google Podcasts.